this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Hi listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to the 57th episode of the Praxis Learning Teams podcast show. Today I continue the conversation with the three authors, Tony, Ron and Jim, on their new book, Critical Steps, Managing What Must Go Right in High-Risk Operations, published by CRC Press and due for release on November 17th and available on Amazon in hardback, paperback and Kindle version. The theme of the book reflects the title, the overarching goal of managing critical risks is to maximise the success of people's performance in the workplace to create value for the organisation without losing control of the built-in hazards necessary to create that value. This book is great. It is so pleasing to see more bodies of work in the new view of safety that are focused on the how and the when rather than the what and the why. Please sit back and enjoy the conversation on Critical Steps with Tony, Ron and Jim. Oh, and I love the fact that you talk about value as well, because that's what workers see. If it's valuable, it's in their it's in their mindset. If it's not valuable, it gets discarded. Yeah, this is not about, yeah, we make a distinction that you don't have to avoid every human error. That's not what this is about. It, 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 in fact, you it's impossible to avoid human error. One, it's impossible. And secondly, it's too expensive. <laughs> well, and, and, and frankly, we should be embracing error. Well, you know, well, we do want to avoid the error at critical steps. That's yeah. that's, <laughs> that's what this book's about. <laughs> uh, just, uh, it just reminds me, um, Tony. You talk about firearms, and we we spoke earlier off 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 recording about firearms. But um, the the latest um, thing was the conspiracy theory about the COVID vaccine was about you know the, creating magnetic conditions of your body. <laughs> so um, I would love, I, I, I want a, a quadruple dose of the vaccine, so I don't need to carry a holster, I can just put my, straight onto my hip, <laughs> <laughs> and it'll just stick to my body automatically. Would, would that be a great outcome? <laughs> I don't know, I don't well, know. About that. <laughs> to, your, to your point, Brent, uh, embracing human error, uh, given my background uh, in, in the research environment, you know, uh, many of the great uh, discoveries uh, in the world were because of things that didn't go as we expected. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, and of course, you realize there's a New Zealand connection of all your careers with a chap called Ernest Rutherford. Oh, that's right, yeah. A good Kiwi. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Yeah, we spoke well, the I have to, I, Yeah, I have, to get, I have to tell you, so, if I'm make sure I'm getting this right, he discovered the atom, right? Yep, yep. he split the atom. Well, I had an opportunity to visit Dr. James Reason at the University of Manchester. Oh, great. And, yeah, this is when I was working with EMPO, and uh, we were collaborating with him about the Excellence in Human Performance uh, uh, Principles document. And so during a break, he took he takes me to to the window of his office, and uh, there's a building, oh not uh, not ten yards or uh, ten meters away from his, it's the corner of a building, and he he pointed to a room in that building. And you see that room over there, the same level, and he said that's where Rutherford discovered the atom. 
right across, you know, just 10 yards from there. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's, yeah. and it's probably still glowing at night. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of history. No, look, it's, 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 it's fantastic. It's amazing. Well, so, one, one of the other things that, that I thought was related to what we were just talking about is, is with the frontline workers. One of the things we spent some time on, and, and I thought we had done a, this section very, uh, quite a bit of justice because there's been so little written on it. Um, but safety actually comes from the idea that, you know, there's the work that's imagined and the work that's performed. And there's a gap between those two things. And the adaptive capacity of the worker to bring safety to that task as a result of that gap and knowing how to close it. And mm. so one of the things we wrote about in this book that I think is I, I think it's gonna be a, an eye opener, it's gonna be an area that people are gonna expand on and, and, and even ourselves, I think, as we, we think about this more and more, uh, is this how to augment that adaptive capacity. How does the organization actually take that on as a means to bring safety, as to say, okay, if, if our workers are actually doing this, which we know they are, right? They're closing that gap and bringing safety to the, to the task, to the organization. Then how do we as an organization take an, a, a very strategic and tactical approach to augment that worker's capacity? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that adaptive capacity, if we augment that in such a way, we can we can take a, a, a step forward with safety that that we really haven't considered. And, and to me, that's one of the areas that that's going to be very exciting to see how many people pick up on this idea and, and maybe even expand it more in the world of HOP and and uh, high reliability and, and see what comes of it. Look, I, th I think that's super exciting. and. One of the things I've been working with Todd on is this uh, notion about how to create transparency of that variability, and, and we call it make do. <laughs> if that makes sense, because because mm -hmm. make do is because so much of safety is asking people to make judgment. Mm -hmm. So much of safety is about people um, assessing or evaluating, and part of the stuff that we're working at the moment is how to, how to change that to what we call critical appraisal rather than evaluation or assessment. Because it's critical appraisal that allows a person to see themselves within the system rather than, rather than the system being imposed on them. And, mm. and to, to push that notion on even further, um, we've the, the new white paper that's just about to come out, and I'm gonna follow up with Todd in the next few days, um, is that we've been doing some experimenting in exactly that situation that you've been referring to. And we've been looking at how do we take that stuff? How do we take all those that make do, that, that, that variability? And how do we make that transparent from an organizational perspective? So that the organization can then be curious mm. and then get some more deeper, meaningful understanding. And and what we've done is, is that we've actually developed a technique and we looked at two components one is we've looked at the routineness component of everyday work and I would argue that routine work is the killer of learning and the breeder of complacency mm -hmm. yeah because there is no time to learn if it's routine 
versus what what you guys have really done extremely well, which is talking about dealing with those uh, risky situations. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the stuff that can bite you, can hurt you. And in both situations, we've created a reflective narrative with the workers. Where mm-hmm. in the case of routine work, workers um, uh, think about uh, over a period of time when something didn't make sense to them, when something was a bit more difficult than they'd normally encounter, something was different from what they'd normally expect, or something that they felt in their gut just didn't didn't seem right. So we just we give them four of just what we give them a framing of four things for them to to reflect back on over a period of time. Right. And then they explore that reflection across nine different components. But but what's important is that we take that worker narrative, we take their stories as captured, as spoken by the workers. And then we take all that narrative and that we present that and we extract from that what are called the weak signals. Mm-hmm. That we look for those patterns or those clusters of that language that's being used. But here's the sexy part. We're using some AI technology that looks at the narrative and it applies a sentiment analysis to the narrative. Sounds like mining. You're mining the information. Yes, because because what we're saying is that um, when things happen, those weak signals become strong signals. Mm-hmm. And of course, everyone becomes an expert <laughs> as to why, because that's just mm-hmm. human nature. But, but why do we struggle to identify those weak signals? Because there's lots of them. But what we've been exploring is this notion of weak signals and resilience. Because it's the language that workers are using, it's mm-hmm. that sentiment of that language, which tells us whether they're coping or not. So, so resourcing could be a, could be a constant uh, phrase that keeps appearing. You know, lack of people, lack of plant, right. lack of this, right. lack of that. that. That's fine. So that identifies, you know, resourcing as an issue. But there'll be work teams that are, that can cope with that, and there'll be work teams that don't cope. Right, right. Now, at the moment, the problem is that when we do classic interventions, whether you call them observations or audits or or conf- JSAs, whatever technique you use, all that data is filtered. That information is captured in the language of the person who's capturing it. It's always being filtered. And what we've been exploring, that if we capture that raw narrative from the workers, what they say and how they say it, then we can get narrative, then we can get sentiment. How do you feel about that? We actually did some work similar to that with the uh, Department of Energy in Mm. uh, several of the national labs um, was scenario based and it was intended to help people have those types of conversations. And the the emphasis was on uh, ensuring success. So it was a forerunner of of what we write about. And we found it to be very useful. Uh, The the people that were having these conversations saw significant benefit. Uh, It improved the way they interacted. Uh, It provided 
some filtered information as a basis of going and looking at the systems that be co contributing those, those things that can trip people up. Uh, and um, the, the, the term that we used was what's going well mm -hmm. and what could be even better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not what's broken, not how are we going to fail, but kind of those things that you're talking about, Brent, what have, what have you noticed, even though this, this succeeded, what was that thing that may have been a little nagging thought as you were completing yeah. this, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely see value. And the AI aspect, um, you know, that's, it. that's, not that's it. going to, right? That, that's going to come of but, age. Yeah, but I'll be honest with you, Brent, you know, that's beyond the scope of our book. <laughs> well, yeah, and they wouldn't let me talk about it. <laughs> well, but I think the uh, what what I love about what you're doing is you are operationalizing mm -hmm. the stuff that people have uh, are talking about, but don't know how to do it. And that's where, but that's yeah. the importance of capturing that. I think Ron was bringing that out. It's important that we in our book we talk about the feedback mechanisms, and the one of which is the post post work post work yep. discussion and capturing that information and then sounds like that's the cutoff between our book and your white paper <laughs> well because all, 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 all we're saying is that workers are doing what they're doing regardless exactly but the problem is and we call it workers have long memory organizations have short memory and so so when things come along unexpected things come along Workers can then tell you the 10 or 15 other occasions that this has occurred. Yeah, this didn't work then. Yeah, and the organization says, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. Okay, what do you, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. and, and, and we call it organizational amnesia. And, and that is because our risk management systems aren't designed to do that. They're not designed to capture that information. And and, that's and an important weakness. Yeah, and, and if they were designed to capture it, you'd never get any work done. Mm -hmm. Because, um, and, and, and I suppose what we're trying to hypothesize, well, it's more than hypothesize. What, what we're trying to say is that um, to see those weak signals, it has to be worker-led. It has to be worker-owned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it has to be supported by the organization. So much of what's being done at the moment as, as, as an organizational intervention. Now, what I love about Hop and Learning Teams is that they are a form of intervention which are, are very much based on being curious, being kind, being aware, but it's still an intervention. If that makes sense? Like workers haven't yeah. said, come yeah. in, come in, you know, welcome. <laughs> you know, they're not saying that. And I suppose what we're trying to do is we're trying to, and I think what you've touched on really well in the book, is that how do we get workers to build those skills they need to critically think and critically reflect? Absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, Ron and, and Jim would would uh, resonate with this. When we were on the submarine on the aircraft carrier, there was a strong focus on technical expertise, knowing the knowing the technology. 
Yeah, when you when you when you uh, operate a, a particular control, what do you expect to happen? Mm-hmm. All right, and they have to have that 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 uh, not only the the operational technology understanding, they have to understand the theory, the reactor theory, the core physics. Uh, uh, that because we're operating nuclear reactors, we had to understand what was going on in the reactor core. If you if you if you increase the you know the flow of coolant through the reactor core, what's that going to do to power, so to speak? Yeah, so, 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 so competency. So competency was probably top of the list of this this idea of augmenting uh, adaptive capacity. You know, we, we did things one way. This is what we intended to do, but we had to do it this way. Why was that? Usually it was because they recognized something was not right and their technical expertise told them or at least inf- influenced ha- the choices they, that they made to make things go right the first time. Yeah, ha- having that skill to know when to back out. Mm-hmm. Having that, because because so much of what we do is we train people. That That's, that's not about building skill. You know, comp- competency and skill are two very, very different things. Yeah, they are. They are. Yeah, and and, and, of, and it's not spoken about much, is it? No. It, one of the things we we wrote about in the book, and we we actually expanded it. Um, this added pages to the book, even though Tony. <laughs> uh, we we wrote on the concept of um, expert intuition. Mm-hmm. And, and this ties into some of the things you were just talking about, Brent, and also what Tony was just talking about. This idea of expert intuition and how do you how do you get your folks there? You know, training is just a component of expert intuition. We, we can provide some training that, that builds some competency in that area, and we can test against it. Depends on how you test. Uh, the other is practice, obviously. Uh, hands-on practices, mock-ups, a variety of methodologies. We've all been involved in that, whether you run a simulator or some kind of mock-up. And then, obviously, there's the idea of mentoring where you have uh, senior members of the organization who have the experience and the competencies to, to be an expert in this particular area, being part of the mentorship over those uh, less experienced. And, and then obviously experience itself uh, is the, the, the fourth and final component of that. Mm-hmm. And what, what we did in the book is we spent some time talking about the importance of expert intuition as a means to bring safety to your organization because they're the ones that are getting that gut feeling that something's not quite right. Well, you can't get that gut feeling if you don't understand the technology, you don't understand the theory, and you don't have the experience to know things are starting to go wrong. And and what I like is that, um, I forget who wrote about this, maybe it was Dr. Weck and Sutcliffe in their book, Managing the Unexpected, but high reliability organizations um, don't recognize something gone wrong, they recognize something going wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to me that that's the important part about this idea of expert intuition is, you, you can't recognize it's going wrong unless you're, you have that expertise and that intuition that, hey, it, it, it's time to do something. Uh, we're, we're about to go off the rails here uh, and what is it we need to do? So um, building that capacity at the front end, like we were talking about earlier, which is what, are the, what must go right? And then if it doesn't, what? But you also need to understand that intuition that comes with 
recognizing that it, it is headed the wrong way, right? Like that gut feeling. Yeah. So we, we added some pages to this book on that. And then there's a big section about conversations, create safety, and all those things tie in uh, because that, that expert intuition through conversations, you can pass some of that on. You can bring that sense of understanding at the moment of time that the workers are happening so that those frontline workers can mentor that that less experienced staff in that area. And and and, and the work that we do, because you know, with my colleague Glynis coming from an adult ed background, we, we call that critical thinking, critical appraisal skills. Mm-hmm. Because th- th- those people can see when things start to move away from the normal. Yep. And they can ask themselves why. Yep. Because yeah, I like. Yeah. Brent, I was going to jump, uh, ask Jim to comment on. He's the skier of the group, and uh, he introduced he introduced this idea of the downhill skier, and they do the same thing. You know, this critical thinking as they're going ninety miles an hour down yeah. down down a, 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 a slope. Yeah, we were just trying to show the uh, the relationship to uh, resilience and Thank you, uh, resilience engineering. Jim still as, here? As a, can you can you hear yeah, me? I, I can hear you, Jim. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, and uh, the the thought was, uh, like most um, high speed, fairly high risk sports, you've got folks that are technically competent. They've they've got a lot of experience. Uh, they realize that every day is different, and they ski pre ski the course to get the general lines, make sure that they are anticipating those things that if you hit might kill you. Yeah. Uh, but then when they are actually skiing in the race, they're making those those adaptive judgments in a microsecond. They're following their expert intuition to help control the muscle responses. And it is just those microsecond differences and being able to adapt and, and do something a little better that make all the difference. It's the same in organizations. One of the things that we haven't said yet, Tony, and, and that is who this book is written for. Um, and I, I think it's important because you mentioned that we're, we're trying to uh, help the, the people in the front line, Brent. Um, what we're trying to do in this book is to provide the understanding and the methods to the first line supervisors that are out there making the biggest difference at enabling those frontline workers, providing mm-hmm. them assistance, providing them support, the tools that they need, the, the latitude and leeway to adapt, understanding that adaptation is going to happen. Uh, and we spend a, a good bit of time looking to help first-line supervisors get a little different perspective because many that will read this book don't come from industries that have practiced these types of approaches. The industries generally have been avoiding failure. They've been Mm -hmm. looking at workers as problems to fix. They've been looking at procedures as the more the better, the more breadth of controls, the more interrelations of systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the better. And that isn't really helping the frontline workers. 
So we're writing this for the first line supervisors to try and help them gain that picture of how this really is going to work best. Which I which I get credit you guys because because that's just so important. Um, but the other thing that I like from from that conversation is that uh, an organisation doesn't have to be wedded to the new view of safety. It doesn't no. have to be wedded to hop or to any of these other the, the things that we speak about. Mm-hmm. And what also like is it doesn't it doesn't require the leadership to go through a transformation process. No, no. Because you know, I don't it's, be, but I'm getting tired of all that stuff. Well, that's uh, that was that was our intent. Was yeah, we're not. In fact, the three of us we're not necessarily wedded to any particular domain of science, safety science here. Uh, whether it's safety one, safety two, or even safety three. Safety three is on the horizon now, and uh, uh, but it's like a Rocky uh, movie. so we use in this book we use whatever works yeah because because what all we're asking leaders to do is to be curious Mm. and and to see the outcome now at the the moment and this has been an interesting conversation recently around metrics (laughs) is uh, and part of the thing that we've been working on is this notion of what we call informational metrics and actionable metrics. So it goes back to Deming's work, mm. which basically says that that organisations by their nature have to measure activities. We like a number. Uh, you guys, you charge clients based on your time. Would that be a fair comment? Value. Yep. Yep. Value. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but your your dollar amount um, at some stage has to equate back to some form of of number. It has to mm-hmm. uh, right. uh, in that way. So we are activity driven. But and you have point, to be. Oh, you have to be. But the thing here is, how do you link the activity to narrative, mm. the context? Because the the activity is the informational component, and that and that's really bringing. Um, our attention to something but the narrative is what allows us to make sense of it and it's the linking the activity to the narrative that then makes it actionable because I think humans are really good at making sense of the information whereas a lot of what we're seeing at the moment is that is the metric is just a number it doesn't actually give us any meaning that sits behind it mm-hmm and I think part of the things that we've been focusing on is, is, and hot metrics are a dirty word. <laughs> okay, and it's a bit like you know, burn the witch if, if we if we start talking about it. But let, let's shift the conversation and basically say, how do we link that number with narrative? And in all the work that I do, particularly with um, with our boards and you know directors and companies. Mm-hmm. They always say to me, "How do I make sense of the information?" Right. We know it's filtered. We know that we're being told, you know, a particular version of the story. But how do I make sense of it? And, and I think what you guys are saying—it's—it's it's the people at the coal faces, the people who are exposed to the risk, to those hazards. 
it's their narrative that can help to inform and give context to the organization. Yeah, I think what you're doing is on the money, you know, to, to, to mind that, that, that um, vocabulary, the, the words that the people are using, that's going to tell you where the risk is in the, in the operation. Well, you'll, you'll see the pattern. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll, you'll see the pattern. And of course, that pattern has to change over time mm-hmm. because work has to adapt. Um, and, and I think once again, what you can then trend, because once again, I, I think um, um, pattern changes and patterns is actually a good sign because that's a sign of progression. If you think back to what Deming talked about, Deming didn't talk about plan, do, check and act. He talked about plan, do, study and apply. So where did the study bit suddenly get converted to an act? What, what, what happened? Where did, where did we, because to me, studying something and acting on something is two very different things. Yeah, in fact, I, I, I've, I've never really liked that act word as part of that, uh, the plan, do, check uh, um, sequence. Yeah, I, I mean, that's I great for a hazard. Gut. I changed yeah. it to adjust. You have to plan, do, check, adjust. Yeah, I mean, once, once again, I, I think acting is, is, is great if it's binary. If it's a hazard, that's easy. But I think if it's a human, it, it's it's not that easy. We, I, th- I think we have to um, study, understand why. And I think your book is about is it, is, it, is about that component. It's it's about supporting people and achieving better outcomes mm-hmm. by understanding where they exist, the system, and how the system supports them, and and how it, 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 in effect. Um, it's shifting the dynamic so that most systems are permission-based, that you give permission to the system. This is the other way around. You're saying that the system is seeking the permission of the worker. That's important. Don't forget to tune in next week when we finish part three of episode 58 of Critical Steps with Tony, Ron, and Jim. Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We would love to hear your learnings or other topics you would like us to explore about learning teams. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and give us your feedback. Become part of the community of practice with learning teams. Go to www.learningteamscommunity.com, support the authors of The Practice of Learning Teams, purchase the book from Amazon.com or go to www.learningteamsbook.com for an inside look and other free book resources from the authors. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.